Let's turn back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, if we can just cast our eyes onto verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said unto him, do you want to be made whole or do you want to be made well? Jesus says to this man in that condition, do you want to be made well? May God help us as we take up his word. We come now then to the third sign in this gospel, uh, the third proper uh, miraculous sign, uh, the first, the wine of redemption, the second, removing the virus and contamination of sin from that boy uh, physically, but saying to us, revealing the glory of Christ's work to us spiritually, that he gives the wine of redemption and joy when his people are married unto him, the feast for all eternity. And he goes to that most extreme case of a boy about to depart in death. And Jesus removes the virus from him by the power of his own word, being present in there in power, in his, you remember, omnipotent and omniscient power that he is all powerful and all knowing and all present omnipresent Jesus has these things because he is God and saves us even when he is not physically present we see here as he comes to Jerusalem again and goes to the pool of Bethesda we see that this son this Son of God, who is his only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. He raises the sinner from the paralysis of sin and gives him eternal life. Remember the closing theme of this gospel, the instruction at the end that tells us why we read this gospel, that you see this, that you may know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this raising to life from the paralysis of sin, the eternal life that Jesus offers and works in the gospel, can be yours if you are yet outside of him. That if you see he is the Son of God through this, and that if you believe it with your heart and soul, you may have that life in your soul and in your body. Secure, it can be yours also. He raises the sinner from the paralysis of sin. And I want to consider this under four headings. The impotence of sin. Second, the sovereignty of Christ. Third, the raising of the sinner. Fourth, the freedom to walk. First, then, the impotence of sin. We see at the beginning of the passage that Christ has gone up to another large feast. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And we will find that many of the great signs in this gospel, including the offering of himself for redemption, happen around these feasts. And that John focuses on Christ most of the time going to Jerusalem. That's pretty much going to be the focus from now on. The other gospels show him in many ways doing many things in Galilee. But John brings these great confrontations between Christ and the church of his day. And remember, it was the church. It was the church that wanted to excommunicate Christ. It was the church that refused him. 
It was the church that rejected him. It was the highest court of the church that sentenced him to death. Jesus is going there and revealing himself through signs and preaching around those signs with his word. And he's looking all the time for the response of Jerusalem. John focuses on these parts of Jesus' life and ministry. In this case, he goes for a feast, and it doesn't matter right now which one it was, because John doesn't even mention which one it was. But while he's there and would have been ministering and interacting with many people, and may have performed other signs, and may have been in the temple, uh, John doesn't mention that at the opening of the chapter. We find Jesus going to a place that the, the Sanhedrin would never have gone, and that the priests in the temple wouldn't have gone, and that those who were exchanging money and selling and profiting uh, from their religion in the temple, as we saw several weeks ago, they were not focused on this at all, but Christ is. We're told in verse 2 that while he was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate there was a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. The pool of Bethesda, which may ironically mean the house of mercy or the house of Hesed, the covenant love of God. Beth being house, Hesed, Hesda, a formulation of that word. There are some other things that it may mean and people debate that. But the pool of Bethesda was a structure about a mile from the temple near the Kidron Valley, just on the east side of the temple. And um, it was a a building that was designed like a a colonnade. I I don't know if you know what that is. It's a kind of Greek-Roman structure that's kind of open and is lined on all sides by large pillars. Now, I don't know what you think when you think of Pool of Bethesda. I can imagine what I would have thought as a young person or a child. Uh, But this is a large uh, building in two sections with two massive pools that were the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So each pool itself would be at least the size of this sanctuary. The Pool of Bethesda structure would be like two or three of these sanctuaries end to end with large pillars on both sides and a wall separating both pools. And it had been there because there were springs there, and some think that one of the kings had made a conduit of water to that area so that if Jerusalem was ever invaded, they would have some water there. But it became ceremonial. Uh, Some think that um, there was some uh, Jewish ceremonial washing in there that we've heard about before. But one thing we know for certain is that people believed it had healing qualities. John mentions that in the text. People believed that. John isn't saying in those verses, verse 4, that an angel actually came down and stirred the water. Um, He's saying that it was believed and understood that that's what was happening. So these pools would bubble up. The water would become stirred probably because of what was naturally going on. But as was the case before Jesus came, even in that end period of the Old Covenant Church, so many superstitions from the Pharisees and the priests and all the little ceremonies they would do, and just things like this. Man is prone to these superstitions. They believed that you would go in there and and be healed because an angel did so. And if you were first, you would be healed. No one else. These are just superstitions. Now, springs do heal certain things. Uh, Some water is good for you, and you find that in places all over the the world. So it's not that no one ever went in here with a skin condition or something, and, and the water actually affected them. But you can see the superstition that is developed here. And Rome identified this godly power that was associated with this place as many other places in their empire and they secured it as a holy site and there was a shrine there at a certain point 
um, dedicated to the goddess Fortunas, or Fortune, the god of luck and fortune that would restore you and bring good things into your life. So there was even paganism at various points in the history of this pool. Anyway, it's there. And the temple is there. And the synagogues are throughout Jerusalem. And God's covenant and his word and Torah law is being taught by scribes and priests. And people like these who we find in this passage were often just left untouched by all of those things. We read in verse 3 that in this place I've just described to you, there lay a great multitude of impotent people. The blind, the lame, or the halt, and the paralyzed, or the withered. Let's give you those words again. Generally, these were impotent people. That's a general word. And John mentions that they were blind people, there were lame people, and, and literally withered people. Now, you know that word if you know your Bible. Well, the Gospels, there was even a man who had a withered hand that Jesus healed. Withered just means dried up or dried of strength or even physically that parts of the body are deformed or withered. In this time, we know from later chapters in John's Gospel that it was a favorite question of the people that if you were in this condition, who sinned, you or your parents? That if you were in this condition, you were not blessed, but cursed of God. If you were in this condition, you were deformed. And even God himself said that there were restrictions on how near you could be to the temple. Deformity being a picture of sin and curse. And certain things were just not allowed in that special temple. Now, I forgot to say last time when I mentioned that to you, uh, God didn't say they couldn't be in worship. The normal place of worship was the synagogue. That's where you went to worship God each week and hear his word. It was only the temple, where you only had to be three times a year. So they weren't, God was not saying, don't come near me, don't come into church. He was saying the temple isn't church. The temple is a picture of heaven, where I dwell and show you the great separation between me and you. They could worship, but you can imagine what these people's lives were like. They're going in there. Superstitions arise that they could be healed. The goddess of fortune or the God of Israel or someone else might heal these people. And superstition that arises in men's minds that if you're first, you will be healed. Now, we do things like this. Even football players and so on do certain things that they say, if I do this every time, then my performance will be like this or... People go to casinos, and if there's certain things they do, it will affect the outcome of the way that fate, as they see it, works. And there's no reason to think if a pool had healing properties, why would it only be the first that would be healed? Why not everyone? And you can just see the foolishness and and the cruelty of man, and even for the people in these conditions, the lack of care for one another. This man believes that If some, I don't know how much he believes it, but if somehow he can get in there first, something may happen. No one wants to help him. They they need to help themselves. The blind, the lame, the shriveled. What a sight of the most needy, afflicted, and pitiful cases of our humanity. Thank God if you have none of these. Not saying it's always bad to have them. Maybe there's a blind person in your life that is far more godly than you and can see God more than you can. But just the difficulty of life. Thank God if you have none of these. We all deserve them. We, have a, we had a death penalty on us in the fall. We all deserve to be deformed and not see and these things. We deserve these things. But just this picture of utter misery a great multitude jesus walks in and all around the platforms around these pools laying on mats the worst of jewish society that no one is really helping 
and they're just left there by themselves. It's like when you go into certain hospitals now or physio wards, or even if you go into things like rehab facilities for physical things or drug and alcohol facilities, or if you walk down the streets of San Francisco and look on the sidewalk and you see where men and women were made in the image of God, upright and with dignity to know God and love him and have the knowledge and wisdom of God by our nature, we are respectable, but we see in those places what happens to humanity when sin is just embraced and it's unchecked, both spiritually and physically. We see men in misery, bound by Satan, with him laughing at them, at what becomes of God's men and women when they are severed from God and in their sin. And Christ is clearly moved, and notice he goes there. He goes there. He's not afraid that he'll be defiled by going there. He's not uncomfortable with what he might see there. He's not uncomfortable with the at the opening and the breaking of conversation, he's not uncomfortable seeing what sin does. He's not uncomfortable what anyone thinks of him. And notice, we're told later, it's the Sabbath day. And everyone else should be in the worship of God and in church and in their beautiful robes and garments to go into God's presence. And as they walk, and like the priest Levite on the way to Jericho, walking on the other side, that there would be no trouble or uncomfortableness. Doing God's true work, which is to sing his praise and hear his word in our own purity, but care nothing for our fellow man or their salvation. But note, friends, that Jesus went to this hospital, this pile of broken humanity, this homeless shelter tent, He went to that place where people had been ravaged and destroyed by sin. And he went in there because that's the business of the great physician. May I say, for those of us who are ministers, it's our business. For those who are elders, it's our business. For those who bear Jesus' name, it's our business, brothers and sisters, to go to these places when we are able and to cut through the how how is your body and what medication you're on i'm a minister when you visit people especially older people at that age they will be very focused on the treatment and they will want to tell you about the treatment and the pills that need taken and all the effects but we need to cut through those things they are important but we need to cut through and see where people are in their souls where they are in their souls so that their souls don't perish Laying in a hospital bed, I've seen it many times. Drug addicts, heroin addicts, seen it many times. Homeless, seen it many times. Drunks, people who are destroying themselves. And you say, look at these people, it's their own fault they're destroying themselves. Oh friend, yes it is their fault and it was my fault too and your fault. When the Lord looked upon you and I and took pity on us. I'm, I wasn't from a, a Christian home. I, I, I wasn't born into a house where the Reformed gospel was known. When I was born, the gospel wasn't known in my house. And the Lord's eye took pity upon it and delivered the gospel sovereignly into that house, undeserved, when there was much there to provoke him not to. And it was just out of sheer mercy that there was even a Bible in our home. Yes, it's people's fault when they sin. And it's my fault when I sin, and it's your fault when you sin. Jesus goes there. Friend, go there with the gospel and find people. Jesus sees them laying there. And we can see because of the miracle and all that Jesus says after the miracle that the sign he performs upon this man is showing us that spiritual condition of you and I that I just described. It's not poor man that he's paralyzed. And poor people who are blind and lame and withered. It's a picture of man in his sin. And that is not me allegorizing. Jesus says it 
uh, throughout the passage. For example, when he heals the man, he says later in verse 21, as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. He says in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. And he says um, in verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, he's granted the son to have life in himself. Jesus gives a discourse on what he's just done. And in Christ's mind, this is spiritual death being depicted. Spiritual paralysis and his ability and power to raise the sinner from that deadness and paralysis. That he is God because he's able to do it. We are told in the King James Version that the multitude of impotent people, lame people, halt people, shriveled people, Jesus goes in there to teach us a lesson about sin. Not just the sign, but the thing signified in the sign. Man and woman and child, unconverted, are impotent in their sin. When Jesus heals a blind man, the sign is not that his eyes are better. That's there. But the thing inside the sign is our spiritual sight. When he opens the ears of the deaf, it's not simply physical. It's teaching us that by nature we are spiritually deaf. We cannot hear and understanding his word. And we are uh, unwilling to hear and understand his word. He says that later when uh, John sums up the whole ministry, the whole public ministry of Christ. And John tells us, what he thought of Christ's ministry. And he quotes Isaiah. The Jews did not believe, he said, because Isaiah said of them, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. There's a great Old Testament exposition of all we're doing in our signs. God says through Isaiah that he is... He is speaking unto Jew and Gentile. He's showing them these signs. And he's saying, you need to see me and hear me and feel me. You need to understand me and turn unto me with all your heart. And I will heal you. The need for healing in our sign here, underlying it, is a greater need for healing, which is our spiritual healing. So that we see and hear God and his word. And that our lame souls, our paralyzed souls that cannot walk, move, or feel would be touched with the finger of God and that our souls would be raised from the dead and that our souls would be able to feel and walk in the way of the Lord. Friend, it's not, it's not just these people that are paralyzed. It's every man and woman outside of Christ is paralyzed. They're laying there on a mat. And all the world can give them is the God of fortune to perhaps heal them. They're paralyzed. The Psalms we sing, you know them. Blessed is the one who walks in the way of the Lord and does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The Psalm that you study, 119. I will run after your commandments. I will walk in your ways. Quicken me, O Lord. This very gospel, Jesus says in the 12th chapter, walk in the light while you have the light. Jesus is calling all sinners to come to him and to walk in the light. By nature, they cannot walk unless Jesus raises them. All what that does to you or I considered in our sin by itself without Christ, all what that does to a sinner The will can't move, it can't get up, it's laying on a mat, it can't feel anything. The affections can't feel, the affections can't love God, the mind doesn't work. It's numb and paralyzed. It can see so many other things, 
but it can't think about God properly. You go to that mind and you present Jesus to it, and the mind just sits there unmoved, untouched, and unfeeling. Man is, as Paul says, dead in his trespasses and sins. As Jesus says in this chapter, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, the Son gives life to whom he will. The hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What a state man is in, and you must see that in yourself if you're not in him. Be aware of it with your beloved children, with the sin in their heart. Keep bringing the gospel to them, bring Christ to them, bring the cross often before them, bring God's law often before them. And remember that without the regenerating power of Christ, be aware that the openness that you see in the now will harden over time, and one day the mind and the heart will become completely closed. What a state man is in. His eyes see the sunrise and the glory of the creation. He marvels at animals and weather systems and all kinds of things. And then you mention God to him, and he stares deadly at you, unmoved, uninterested. You tell a man he's going to die, and he starts to analyze it like he's an animal. He feels nothing spiritually. This man wants to live right, and he'll, he'll e- even tell you if you've offended him. And he'll stand up for causes, and he'll send uh, documents to the Congress to put right all the wrongs of the nation and his community but he never will keep his own standards. And if you bring his own wrong before him, he's not interested in that subject at all. And worst of all for a man, all over the place today in this nation, young men and women desperate for meaning, desperate for purpose and to belong to something, something to fill the heart, something to bring happiness rather than the antidepressants and the meaninglessness. They want belonging and meaning. And if you want to know what sin is like, You present to them that belonging and meaning, the very thing they want and need, and they just stare deadly at it, unmoved, uninterested, dead, paralyzed. You can't save them, friend. You can't save them. They're paralyzed. You might as well tell a paralyzed man out on the street, let's go for a run together. We don't have the power to save them Man is impotent. Secondly, we see the sovereignty of Christ in this sign. Verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew he had already been in that condition a long time, and said unto him, Do you want to be made well? Though they are all there around these pools, Jesus sees one of them. He sees one of them. And it's likely it was the worst one. That's what Jesus does in these signs. He chooses the worst so that it is impossible to explain any other way. He didn't heal a sick child. He healed a child who was literally at the point of death. He didn't feed the 5,000 by bringing together a few Christian families and spreading a table that could feed 10 families. It was the tininess of what Jesus used in chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000. The tininess of it. The impossibility of it. He didn't arrive in, in chapter 11 when his friend Lazarus had died. He didn't arrive 10 minutes after Lazarus died. Jesus waited until Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Even those present questioned the propriety of what Jesus was doing, and they said unto him, Lord, it has been four days, there is a stench. Jesus leaves things and chooses things that are the worst cases, that are impossible to do anything about. Here, this man, we're told, had been in that condition 38 years, verse 5. He's paralyzed. He has deformed limbs. Maybe he was born without certain limbs. Maybe those limbs were seriously deformed. 
upon birth. Maybe he was in an accident and can't feel anything. And when the water stirs, he's pulling himself along or he's on a crutch. He can't get there before anyone else. There's something seriously wrong with him that's ruined his life. And he's been that way, not for three years, not for ten years laying on a mat. Can you imagine, friend? If you'd been on a hospital bed for 38 years, or you have a relative who's on a hospital bed 38 years, and Christ goes to that person where it is just simply impossible to do anything about it, he chooses that man. And notice he knew. He knew he had been in that condition a long time. His knowledge of this man in going there, as his knowledge of Nicodemus in chapter 3, as his knowledge in chapter 4 of a Samaritan woman he met at the well. Do you know what she said after interacting with Jesus for an hour? She said, come and see the man that told me everything I've ever done. He sees inside their hearts. He knows this man. And he knows how long he's been like this. And if I may say respectfully, Jesus has the audacity to say, do you want to be made well? What else would a person like that want? Do you want to be made well? Well, we see in Christ selecting this man something about the nature and character of God that we always must remember. His love and grace are sovereign and he doesn't save everyone. There are other places where thousands come to Christ and he heals lots of them. He goes in here and he goes to one, the worst. It's not even someone that's looking for him. It's not even someone that asks for mercy. The man doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Utter sovereign pity. He elects the worst of the worst and determines that he will save and love and restore out of the many. He selects one. Others had come to him anxious for him to do something John is revealing the glory of God here in Jesus' ministry. John was astonished to see this. It's not even someone that's looking for him or studying the law or trying to find him. It's not a woman that's come and says, my daughter is demon-possessed, please help us. This man has lain there and just given up. And he's only focused on the stirring pool. At least that's all we can see. All kinds of things would go on in his heart. But Jesus sees it. And he selects him. And that's one of God's glories. That's one of Christ's glories. That he finds someone who doesn't deserve it, who isn't looking for it. And he just selects. We're told in this chapter that these things are specifically purposed. Um, In verse 19, the son does nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the father do, For whatever he does, the son does in a like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these. Now this is a common teaching in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is going around instinctively just um, selecting miracles, that there's there's an embedded purpose behind what he's doing, that his ministry has already been planned out by the father. And that Jesus in his humanity, as he's given things by the Holy Spirit to see and insight into people's hearts, and when he's confronted by certain situations, Jesus is actually carrying out works that have been pre-appointed by the Father. So just realize that the Father had appointed that this work would take place from all eternity. And Jesus is fulfilling that work. And that's the way it is in salvation, friend. For you, if you are saved and Christian and you love God, 
that was a sovereign choice of God from all eternity. And you might not have been looking for him. Some of you may not. Not everyone is seeking Christ in Christianity explored. Not everyone is so dissatisfied that they're reading books about religion and seeking to find which one will give them meaning. There are people that are just going about their everyday business and out of nowhere, God stops their life and confronts them and reveals himself to them through the preaching another Christian or some providence of some kind. For you, in Christ, that choice was made before the foundation of the world. The full knowledge of your sin. And you were laying there on a mat, paralyzed, unable to move, and you would never be able to restore yourself. Jesus Christ looked upon you. His Father looked upon you. And from all eternity, in the covenant of redemption, he set his love on a people who were extremely unlovable, enemies, ugly, deformed spiritually. We were so ugly and unclean, detestable. And he looked upon you. You want to trace it back and say, what was it about me that pleased you or interested you? No, that's the glory of God. He's not like us. Uh, we love people because they love us back. And we enjoy them. You're not going to marry someone you don't enjoy. Who, who drives you up the wall. And there, there, there are so many things wrong with them. There are other reasons for that. But we're sinners too. That would be a very bad idea. God can love people who are like that. Because he can change them in an instant as Jesus does here. Elect before the foundation of the world. Why? Because God says when he reveals his name in Exodus 34, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I have loved you, he says to Israel, because I have loved you. That's the reason that he chose you. It was nothing in yourself that drew forth his love. He loved you because he loved you. That love is absolutely sovereign. It was just out of sheer choice. And it's rooted way back and above in the infinite wisdom and secret will of God and in his own great love. Just accept that, Christian. The reason God loves you is because that is who he is. And that's what he wanted to do. And he doesn't change his mind about things like that. Once he loves you, he will always love you. One may say, that's not fair. What if he doesn't choose me? Why does he choose some and not others? Why does he show mercy to some in humanity, not others? Friend, he shouldn't have loved any of us. We were his enemies. He wasn't bound to love any of us. He was bound to destroy the Philistines, not start saving them and binding them to himself, adopting them as his own children, changing them and loving them. It was his job to destroy his enemies. Adoption and salvation, just sheer and utter mercy. But it's not fair. He could save everyone. I'll quote Paul to you, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Who are you to tell God who he can and cannot love? <clears throat> while he does elect, and while there's a way we must emphasize it, I hope it's for your comfort, I say at the same time as the word tells us that Jesus sovereignly loves, I want to say this to you. Jesus offers salvation genuinely to every sinner. How does that work, you say? That's none of your business, how that works. God will choose whom he saves, 
But it is equally true and plain in Scripture, even in this gospel, that whosoever believes in him will not perish. Anyone, he says, who hears the voice of the Son of God will be raised and live. If you are not saved and you go to hell, that is because you would not listen to God and you were unwilling to believe his gospel. It's not God's fault. We must humble ourselves in these two matters and not think that we can outthink God. God tells us both things. And the question this morning, when Christ is presented to you and you're called to believe, you should never ask, well, am I elect? And why does God elect? If you're being called to salvation, stop thinking about election. The question is not, am I elect? The question is plain. Am I a condemned sinner? And is there a gospel offered to me this morning for condemned sinners? That's the only question you need to answer. And you're called to believe it. Now, if you do believe it, if your soul rises in faith this morning and you take hold of Jesus Christ and repent and believe the gospel, that will show that God has made choice of you. But let us not pry into the secret things of God and you must take God at his word. The gospel goes out from this church and this pulpit and anyone who hears it can believe. What in the hearing of it, the strength and power comes through it. And there is a choice that you are making in your seat. You you either choose to respond to it or you choose to reject it. Yes, God must give grace. And yes, it's God that saves. But he holds us responsible for rejecting the gospel. Christ's sovereignty in choosing this man. Third, Christ raising the sinner. In making this choice, he says to them, the man says to him, there's no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. When I come, another steps down before me. Jesus had asked him, do you, do you want to be made well? And this is often what a sinner might say. And it's true. It's, it's true. Uh, when we're in sin and we're lost, um, we embrace the lifestyle that we have and the sin that we have. And we often can't see any way out. All I mean by that is this. If you go to an alcoholic and say, sir, do you want to be made well? There's a way factually he probably wants to make well, uh, to be well. But the problem with the sin is, the sin isn't always this invader in the man, an unwanted invader that the man's saying, I want rid of this. The sin becomes part of the person. It, be, it maims his whole will and being. And so that the, the sinner doesn't want to give up the sin. And you can even find this, not with direct sins like that, but even with the disabled, for example. If someone's used to a wheelchair for 20 years and their, uh, their routine and everything and all that comes along with being disabled and, and feeling curtailed and uh, uh, feeling always um, that they stand out and feeling that everyone else just walks up the steps and goes into the museum, but they have to go round and go up this... It's always distinguishing them. It can even become a special badge for them. And the truth is, if you actually gave them the power to walk, they actually might find it difficult. Even though they would rejoice that they can walk, they might mourn the life they've left because you get used to what you are. People leave prison and want to go back to prison because they don't know anything else. When you leave a home, you can mourn. When you leave a situation, even if it's sinful and a lot of things about it weren't good for you, we become attached to what's around us. That's why it's so important to not play around with sin, not let it flood into our lives. Sin will take hold of us and the things it does becomes part of what we are and we have a love for it. This man is saying, no one helps me or there's nothing I can do about it. He sees obstacles. He He's leaned into and bent into that life. 38 years, he doesn't really see a way around it, and he's used to it, and that's his life. There's no way around that. You can't be in that condition 38 years and not eventually just lean into it and become the thing that it is. He is a cripple. 
he isn't married. No one's helping him. He's alone. His, his life is pretty much over in most experiential ways. And that's that. That's what sinners are like. When you try and share with a sinner, remember that. The, the person who's the prostitute or the person who's really materialistic and has stolen all their life and has been fired from you know, a blue-chip company for corruption or whatever, they have a lifestyle, and they're not just going to give that up. It's what they're used to. And you need to bring the gospel to bear and all these things. You can say to them, do you want to be made well? And all they'll say to you is, oh, this is the way it happened. It all began 12 years ago, and this is the way it began. You need to, you, you need to push away from that, or you'll, you'll be there for 20 hours. You need to get them to the gospel. We all have our story, and we're all... We've all done these things to ourselves, and we all have things we're attached to. And the question is, do we even want to be made well? The sinner loves the sin. He doesn't want to be made well. He wants his sin. He wants his, the, the good life. Well, that's more a spiritual application of what this man said. But Jesus says unto him, rise up, rise, take up your bed, and walk. It's amazing. And it happens physically, like the other miracles I've shown you. It happens physically, it happens immediately. By the power of his mere word. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. John 1 verse 3 and 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. This chapter here, I read to you that Jesus says, as the father has life in himself, he's given the son to have life in himself all the life of god is bound up in jesus christ and he is the word and he gives a command as a divine person and says rise up and walk and this man is transformed the malady is reversed limbs may have grown cells are definitely transformed and restored tissue and muscle is restored the nervous system and the vascular system is restored Jesus restores this man to the fullness of a human body that operates as it should. When he was that way for 38 years, and Jesus in less than 38 seconds, by the mere power of his word, changes this man. The time is coming and now is where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He raises this man. Notice the word. Rise up and walk. Rise and walk. He's raising this man physically there and then. He raises people's souls spiritually from spiritual paralysis to walk. And at the end of all things, as he says at the end of this chapter, the whole world will hear his voice and they'll come forth from the grave. Why? Because he's God. That you may believe he is the Son of God. He is a divine, eternal person. He has equal authority as the Father. It's throughout this chapter. As the Father works, so I work. As the Father says, so I do. As the Father has life, so I have life. He who does not believe in me does not believe in the Father. He who is not willing to see him will never see me. He who does not hear him will not hear me. They say blasphemy. You not only break the Sabbath, you make yourself out to be equal with God. Indeed. Because he is equal with God. Rise up, man, he says. And the man's body is utterly restored. And can he not do so? Can he not do so? The one who spoke the universe into existence and built the human body in the first place from the dust of the earth and breathe life into it. The one who designed the muscle, the one who designed the cell, the one who designed the DNA and the RNA and the mitochondria, the one who encoded our flesh with a biological software system to rebuild itself and produce all kinds of things within us to fight diseases and invaders into our body. The one who built bone, and marrow. The one who thought it up. The one who designed it. Can he not do it? People used to laugh back in the day. <clears throat> in the 17 and 18 and 1900s. Even happened in 
the church I grew up in, the Free Church of Scotland. Even some of the theologians embraced evolution and these things. Miracles were kind of scoffed at in, in liberal theology. But we don't scoff at them anymore. I don't. I don't find this hard to believe at all. I understand why people in the 1800s found this hard to believe. I don't find it hard to believe at all. Darwin said there was a simple thing and it developed and somehow some protoplasm or jelly became a thing and then it developed over time. He had no idea what we know now, that we are biological machines with the most complicated software program in the cosmos, in our cells. He didn't know that. The only explanation for that is God. I said to you last time, that people find it hard to believe in a miracle or the resurrection of the dead. Um, that's just the blindness and impotence of man again. They, they do believe in miracles and they do believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, according to them, we're only here because some amino acids somehow came together uh, and, 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 and built proteins and DNA and, and somehow built our bodies and somehow we became conscious. Somehow we started to believe in right and wrong. Somehow we don't want to die. Somehow we're capable of love. Somehow we have a sense of the divine. They believe all that. They just believe the resurrection happened at the very beginning and that there was no designer, there was no cause to it. It just happened. They believe light and energy came from nothing. They believe gravity just happened. No one thought of it or put it in place. They believe all kinds of crazy miracles. Crazy miracles. Stupid, foolish miracles. But if you tell me that beyond space and time there's an infinite God, an infinite mind of infinite power, and that he made us, I have no problem believing at all that his son raised this man and brought his body back together. The son of God can do that because he has the power that was there in the very beginning. Rise up and walk, he says. It doesn't surprise me that he rose up and walked because of who it was that was saying it to him. Darwin says that nobody said a billion years ago, rise up and walk. And that everything just rose up and walked anyway. You know that's crazy, right? That's crazy. God alone designs and says, rise up and walk. He does it in the soul too. He says to the lost sinner, in the hearing of the gospel, as they're sitting there saying, but what if I'm not elect? The word comes to your mind and heart this morning, and that is a word of life. And I speak on my master's behalf. The word I'm preaching to you, this word here, is alive. This truth is alive. And if his spirit is working, that word is transmitted in your hearing livingly and i say to you the words of jesus that he commands you spiritually children rise up and walk he calls you to believe and repent and to see the glory of jesus christ and not wait till you're older but see him now and believe in all the words of this gospel and love him. Rise up and walk with him. Don't stay in darkness and unbelief and your sins against your parents and others. Turn to him and walk with him. When the gospel is preached, I'm bringing things to a close here. When the gospel is preached, that word comes and is the means by which the person can live. But the word must be believed. That's why others don't rise up and walk, because they don't believe the word. It's only 
as the word is coming forth, if God is doing a work in your heart, that certain dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And I ask you, friend, old and young, man, woman, and child, when the word is preached and it comes to you, do you love it? Do you believe it? Is your soul alive? Is the love of God in your heart? Is a love of holiness in your heart? Can you see it there? Yes, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and you do not do the things you wish. And there is sin there, but is the love of God beating there? Do you want to be holy? Do you obey him willingly and gladly? Are you spiritually sensitive on walking or are you paralyzed? Well, he is the one alone who raises the sinner from death. Well, a closing comment then, as we bring things to a close. When the sinner was in impotence and has now been raised, they are raised to walk as Jesus tells them to walk. He walks with his mat. They want to debate Sabbath commandments. Jesus finds him in the temple again in verse 14 and says, you are whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And there's no time to enter into this in any depth whatsoever, but leave with this thought that he raises spiritually paralyzed people so that they'll walk properly. And it's not believe in Christ and I love Christ and I want to sing a lot, but I'm not concerned about sin. He doesn't say sin a little, sin no more, sin no more. You have been freed from that paralysis and that stinking mat of sin and that dirty water of the pool of Siloam. You can walk in the freedom of a Sabbath, of a Lord's day of power. He's given you the power to walk. His commandments are not burdensome. Love him, worship him properly according to commandment, respect his name and his titles and his works. Set aside his day for positive, redemptive Christian living, witness and love. Respect authority. Respect life in every way. Respect sexual purity and the difference between the sexes. Respect property and time and what other people own. Respect the truth. Respect vows. Be honest with God and yourself and others. And be content and be very suspicious of your own desires and be more obsessed with the desires of Jesus Christ. These aren't burdensome commandments from one whose legs and arms work and whose heart and mind and eyes work. Oh, man and woman, you're alive in Christ. Live out that beautiful law of love. Live it out and serve him. Go, sin no more. If we sin, if we fall into sin, it dominates us again. It becomes our master. If we are given over and find out we were unconverted and we're held in sin and its trappings again with its tentacles around us to destroy and kill us, worse things will happen to us than this. And the worst things of all, that we will be cast into the place where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched, and we will be damned. Jesus is so gracious, but he tells the truth. I love you and I'm gracious, but I warn you, he says, sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Friends, walk in the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. Let's stand to call on his name in prayer. Everlasting God, we bless you for this gospel. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Oh, that those who are in Christ would praise you and thank you this morning for this liberation that you've given, where once we were imprisoned and unmoved and in paralysis of soul. And yet, you introduced eternal life into us by your Spirit, and you woke up our wills our affections, our hearts. You gave us to see something of your glory, of the glory of your grace and truth. 
Help us then each day to look upon Christ by faith in that glory, to follow him, and to look forward one day to standing in that upper spiritual temple and seeing him as this man did, face to face. Help us between now and then to walk the path that he approves. Save us from all the deceit of man and of Satan that would divert us into sin in any way, the deceit of our own hearts. Oh, that we would go and sin no more. Keep short accounts with God and keep, a, keep our slate clean before you and say no to sin every time it presents itself. Oh, for the holiness and love of Jesus Christ to fill us. Oh, that we would walk. We pray for those around us in our lives and with our relatives and others who as yet do not have this everlasting life. Oh, Lord, as you use us to share the gospel in the coming weeks in our lives, we ask that it would go forth from our mouths with the living power of the voice of the Son of God and that those who are dead shall hear it and live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.